Welcome to Lompoc Foursquare Church's podcast. Enjoy the message. Hey, we're going to talk about worship this morning. And uh, it's always funny when I tell people, hey, we're going to talk about worship. There's two responses, like, yes, or oh, no. And I, I remember when I was, I was a young pastor, and, and I'm, I'm, every Sunday when I'm, I'm up to preach, our service was at 10 o'clock, and this guy, Steve, would walk in at 10.35. Walk in at 10.35, and he'd sit in the back row. I'm like, well, that's weird. And this goes on for about maybe six, seven weeks, and I think, you know, maybe he just... He can't get here any earlier. And then I realized that lady he comes in and sits to next to 35 minutes into the service every week, that's his wife. So she's, she's made it on time. So I, I follow him out to the parking lot one day. I'm like, Steve, uh, what's Siri's talking to me? It's going to be a good morning when my watch starts getting lippy. Um, so I follow him out in the parking lot. I'm like, hey, Steve, how you doing? And we're having this conversation. Big guy, cop, you know, big brr. And, uh, but a great guy, and, and I'm like, hey, I've just noticed that you, you spend 35 minutes every Sunday in the parking lot. I mean, are you good? Everything okay? Because as a pastor, you're like, are they fighting every single day on the way to church? And it takes him 35 minutes to, to walk in. He goes, no, no, I'm good. I just don't like worship. And, and I'm, I'm a young pastor, so I, I didn't, I was like, oh, okay. And, and, I, and I wish... Pastor John today could go back and coach Pastor John on that day because the conversation would have been really different. It would have been something like, hey, Steve, I noticed you come into service 35 minutes late every Sunday. Are, are you good? Yeah, I'm good. I just don't like worship. I disagree. And Steve would have said, what are you talking about? And I would have said something like, Steve, I, man, you have got a sweet ride. You look like you put a lot of time and energy into the, oh, yeah, it's a beautiful truck, lift kit, rims. You should see my sound system. It's amazing. Steve, let me ask you a question. When you're having a really good day, like you're super happy, what do you like to do? I get my truck, I go for a drive. Yeah. Hey, when you're kind of stressed out, what do you do? I get my truck, I go for a drive. Ah. When you're feeling a little kind of uncertain and uh, maybe even a little sad, a little down, what do you do? I go wax my truck. I mean, I had a great truck, and my response then would have been, Steve, you do worship. We all worship. We're geared to worship. The object of your worship just happens to be your truck. What you're telling me when you say, I don't like to worship, is you saying, I don't like to stand up in the back of the church and sing songs to God with a bunch of other people. But that's not what worship is. So I want to talk to you this morning about what worship is. And if you're somebody who doesn't like to stand in the back of church and sing songs with a lot of other people, let me just put your mind at ease right now. We're not talking about congregational singing. We will next week. Please come back. We're just going to talk about what worship really is. The word worship comes from uh, the old English word that is a combination of two words. One, we earth which means worth, and sipe, which means a quality or, or shape of something. So friendship, for example, is, is having the quality of being a friend. Worship or worthship is having the quality of, of having worth or being worthy of something. So when you and I worship, whatever it is that we are worshiping, we are saying that thing, that person, God, an idol, whatever it is, I mean, worship is universal, that has worth. Revelation 4, verse 11, 
describes a scene in heaven. And it says, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. Who are they talking about? God. Absolutely. That was a freebie. They lay their crowns before the throne and say what? You are worthy. So when, I am, when I'm talking about worship, I'm talking about a posture that we take that acknowledges the worth or the value of something else. Now, there are two word groups in the Bible used that we translate in English as worship. The most common word that we use to translate as worship literally means to bow down, like to, to genuflect, to, to bend. Um, it's a gesture of submission or respect for a person, for God, or an idol where we're saying, I am lifting you, I am exalting you to a position above me. Uh, Psalm 95 verse 6 says, come, let us bow down in worship. It's a posture we take. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Uh, I would show you what this looks like, but for some reason, after saying really nice things about Joey last week, the guy that I work out with, Joey decided that we needed to turn it up this week. So if I kneel down in worship or for any other reason, it's going to take three of you to lift me back up. My legs are broke. So imagine with me, me kneeling. It's assuming a posture above something that says you are worth listening to. You are worth worshiping. The body language says, I will do whatever it is that you want me to do. I am listening to your instruction. This is what the elders are doing. And I'm willing to obey. When it comes to worshiping God, you can't separate worship from obedience. Worship is tied inevitably to action. The other word group used in the Bible for worship means to serve. And it carries the idea of doing something for God. Worship means to bow down. Worship means to serve. The Lord said, Exodus 8, the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they might serve me. If you, trans if you read that in the New International Version, it says that they might worship me. So Jesus then ties both the idea of worship as bowing down and worship as service together when he responds to the devil in the wilderness as he's trying to tempt him. Matthew 4, 8 through 10. Again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Satan said, excuse me, Jesus said, that's a big miss. Jesus said, that's how heresy starts. Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord, there's that word, and him only will you serve. So you see worship, you see falling down or bowing down, and you see service, all tied together in the concept of worship. Worship is the response to the worth or worthiness of something that involves both submission and sacrifice. Do you see how this might be a bigger subject than singing songs? Yeah? So worship involves both submission and sacrifice. It's not something that we stop and start. We don't start worshiping at 9 o'clock and stop at 9.18 because that's when the songs are done. Worship is something that we do ongoingly. We never stop, although the object of our worship can change 
from time to time. Whatever is setting the course or the direction of our life, whatever we're constantly planning or scheduling around, whatever we are prioritizing, that is probably something that we are worshiping. And whatever you worship will determine the trajectory of your life. This is why the first and greatest commandment was worship the Lord your God and serve him only. What I submit to, what I serve to, what I, what I surrender my life to is going to determine everything that I do. It's not something that starts when, when Tyler starts playing the guitar. So I wanted to do a quick self-assessment. What am I worshiping? Are there things in my life that I am giving worship to that may be competing with Jesus, right? So if you want to figure out what you're worshiping, it's helpful to think about how we worship. So here's some of the ways that we worship. We worship with our time. What do we prioritize? What do we give ourselves to? We worship with our money. Where where are we investing our resources? What is is most important to us? What do we pay for before we'll pay for anything else? We worship with our focus. What am I thinking about? What what has always got room in this brain of mine? What can I not wait to do? We, We worship with our service, our actions, and then we worship with our words. You know the guy that just can't shut up about something? Like, and that something could be different. It could be his son, the quarterback. It could be his car. It could be his gym routine. It could be his house. It could be his vacation. It could be his retirement. I mean, he just, he's always talking about it. That has the focus of his life and is probably one of the things that he is worshiping, though he may not know it. Now, here's the good news. You can read down that list of time, money, focus, service words and go, John, I'm a horrible singer, but I'm actually a pretty good worshiper. I give God my time. I'm here. I showed up. Do you know showing up on a Sunday morning to be with God's family is an act of worship? I I, I put something in the bucket just a second ago. Dropped a 10 spot. I'm I'm worshiping with with my money. I'm... My focus, I'm paying attention to John, kind of. And I can see when that fading starts. Um, and, and with my words, I sang half of a chorus this morning. Granted, I got here late. That was all I was here for. But, I, ooh, that got quiet. That was supposed to be funny, Caden. That was supposed to be a joke. But perhaps that landed. My apologies. Not... All of this is really good. All of it's great. It really is. Even the things that we, we talk about giving our time and attention to, things like, like, like family, youth sports, volunteerism, recreation, work, cover, retirement, none of those are bad things. They're all good things. They're just never intended to be the main thing. Not because God is trying to demand something from us, but because God knows what will ultimately fulfill us what will bring us an enduring peace and a lasting joy. Everything else that we worship, that we serve, is going to disappoint us at some point in time. 
But Jesus never, ever will. And so when God begins with worship the Lord your God and serve him only, he is not saying at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, hey guys, I'm super needy. He's saying, hey guys, if you want to live in step with me, let me be your focus. And it's not simply about our actions. It's not what we do, but rather the heart that is attached to it. Because worship is an attitude before it is ever an action. Two people can perform the same action, whether it's singing or giving or or some of our amazing greeters that are handing out bulletins at the door. And for one of them, it may be an act of worship because it is in their heart to serve God. For the other, it is an act of volunteerism because we're, we're LFC and we love and serve. Both of those are good, and I'm grateful for both. But the one that will be most fulfilled is the one who is posturing themselves to do everything out of a love and appreciation for God and what he has done. Jesus, Jesus hammers the Pharisees sometimes, right? I mean, just gets them good. Matthew 15, 9, he's talking about them, and he says, these people honor me with their lips. They say the right thing, but their hearts are far from me. They worship, and those are my quotes, not Jesus's, uh, in vain. It's not true worship. Their teachings are merely human rules. So I sat down and I asked myself, because I, I wanted to be responsible as I share with you, what kind of worship is Jesus looking for? Anybody want to know what kind of worship Jesus is looking for? It's a trick question. He's not looking for worship. He's looking for worshipers. He's not looking for worship. He's worthy of worship. He's going to receive worship. He's looking for worshipers. People who, out of an ongoing, healthy, loving relationship with him, will engage him in everything that they are doing. I wanna, I'm going to tell you a story, and I was going to tell you it's a quick story, but it's not. So um, <laughs> this morning is a bit of a background, and we'll get into more application. Like if you're waiting for the John, what am I going to do differently moving forward? Some of that's coming next week. But I want to paint a picture of how Jesus brings us to worship as an extension of our relationship. So Jesus has gone to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And while he's there, a bunch of stuff has happened. He's cleansed the temple. You remember that story? Money changers, kicks them all out. He's, he's talked with Nicodemus about what it means to be born again. Uh, he gets the news that John the Baptist has been beheaded. Uh, the Pharisees set their sights on Jesus and determine that they're going to kill him. And so Jesus decides it's time to get out of Jerusalem in the south and head back to Galilee in the north, but Jesus doesn't take the most traditional route. He chooses instead to go through Samaria on the way to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Galilee. It is the most direct route, but it's a very, very uncommon route. Let me tell you why. Quick history lesson. After the death of King Solomon, who was David's son, uh, in 975 BC, the kingdom of Israel was divided in two. Ten tribes to the north, two tribes to the south. The north became the northern kingdom, which was called Israel. We've got a map of it here. And the southern kingdom was called Judah. In 721 BC, the Assyrian army comes to that blue part, and they wipe it out. They completely uh, destroy the northern kingdom. And there's this process of forced migration where they take 
um, they take the people in that land out to Assyria, and they, there's this reverse where, where they take people from other places that they've conquered and repopulate the northern kingdom. Some of the Jews did remain uh, kind of the poorest of the poor, and they intermingled, and they intermarried with these people that had come from other regions and brought their religions with them. And this region became known as Samaria. We've got a map of that as well. And the people here are Samarians. So you see in the south, this is Judea. That's where Jerusalem is. And you've got that big chunk of Samaria. And then Galilee, where Jesus wants to go. Normally, um, a Jew would go across the Jordan River, up past the Decapolis, to Galilee. They would not set foot in Samaria because... When God brought the Jews back in, a, in an attempt to remain pure, they excluded the Samaritans when they returned from their own captivity and built the temple. You know this uh, from the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah. So you have, you have those who remained in the south. You have uh, really what they called like mutts or mongrels, this, this inbred group of Gentiles and Jews who had adopted their own religious practices because the Samaritans came to the the. the they came to the temple and said, we want to be a part. And the Jews said, no, you can't be a part. You've been polluted. So they went back and they built their own temple, their own place of worship on a, a mountain called Mount Gerizim while Judah rebuilt Jerusalem and the temple there. The Samaritans were similar in their worship to the Jews, but they rejected all of the Jewish prophets and all of the wisdom teachings because all of the prophets and all of the wisdom teachings wrote about how Jesus was going to come through the line of David and the city of Jerusalem. So you have these two competing ideologies about worship. You have two people groups who hate each other, never interacted, and could not come to agreement about what it meant to worship God. No self-respecting religious Jew would set foot in Samaria. To walk through Samaria made them unclean, and they had to go through all of these purification rituals. But Jesus, on his way to Galilee, walks through Samaria, and he meets this lady by the well. John 4, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. He didn't, but he chose to. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Two things never happened. Jew talking to a Samaritan, man talking to a woman. Uh -uh, Doesn't happen. His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Okay, got a couple of things going on, a couple of characters. You've got the woman. You have a Samaritan woman at the well at noon. Noon was not when you drew water. Noon is the heat of the day. You would do it early around dawn or later in the evening around dusk. Getting water was one of the only social interactions that women enjoyed. So the fact that the woman is there in the middle of the day instead of the beginning or the end of the day, and she's alone, would suggest to us that she is marginalized among her own people. 
but she comes to a well. Now, what's interesting is that a well throughout the Old Testament is a place of encounter. It's where Abraham's servant met Rebekah, who would become Isaac's wife. It's where Jacob met Rachel, who would become his wife. It's where Hagar met the angel of the Lord when she had been kicked out by Sarah and Abraham. So when we, we see this woman who is isolated and alone, but we see her coming to this place that historically for Jews has been a place of encounter in their scriptures. And she comes to the well, and she finds her path obstructed by a Jewish man who says, I'm thirsty, can I have a drink? This is all completely out of order, completely out of whack. And when she says, you, a Jewish man, are asking me for a drink, she's basically saying, are you nuts? Do you understand how many norms you just crossed over? Why are you even here? And Jesus doesn't explain himself. But he begins to to start a dialogue that is ultimately going to lead to worship. He says, listen, if you knew the gift of God. Now, Acts 1.8 tells us that the gift of God is the Holy Spirit. Wait in Jerusalem for the gift my Father has promised. And he says, and if you knew who asked you, well, who was asking her? Jesus, the Messiah. We know that. But she doesn't yet. There's this little bit of foreshadowing that we have. He says, if you knew the Holy Spirit and realized that I was the promised one, you would have asked me for water, and I would have given you something completely different. I would have provided you for you a life source, living water that never runs dry. Living water, as opposed to water from the well, was water that was moving, that flows in a river or a stream. And according to rabbinic law, the the teachings of the rabbis, only living water could be used in rituals to cleanse or to purify unclean worshipers. So living water to, to Jesus' people represented both cleansing and transformation. So he says to this woman, if you knew the Holy Spirit, and if you realized that I was the Savior, you could come to me and I would provide for you a life source that would never, ever run dry. Sir, she says, verse 11, you don't have anything to draw with, and the well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well, and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, whoever drinks this water is going to be thirsty again. But the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up into eternal life. The woman said to him, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back to here to draw water. Now, this is where the lady lives. She knows there is no other source of water. If there was another source of water closer to town, she would have gone there. And so she says to him, are you greater than Jacob? Well, you and I know the answer is, well, yes, I am. I'm the one who gave Jacob that well. And when people come to drink from the water I am going to give, they will never thirst again. We we know Jesus will stand up in the last and greatest day of the feast and declare in the temple, if anyone is thirsty, let them come to me and drink, and out of their innermost being will flow rivers of living water. This is a a theme. But Jesus says in this instance, it's going to well up. And that is a word very similar to the description in the Old Testament that would have been familiar to this woman about how the Holy Spirit would fall upon or leap upon these great leaders like David or Solomon 
and others. And so Jesus is saying those who know the Holy Spirit and encounter the Savior are going to have a never-ending presence of God within them that will make them great and able to do what these others in Scripture have done. And so you have this marginalized, disenfranchised, lonely woman who suddenly is hearing, wait a minute, there is an opportunity for me to be more than I am right now. There is an opportunity for me to be great. I want this water. And Jesus says, okay. Verse 16, go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, she said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we worship is in Jerusalem. Probably the most significant thing in that exchange is, sir, I see you are a prophet. Not because he's just read her mail and told her something that she didn't think he would know, but because the Samaritans have rejected all of the Jewish writings and the Jewish prophets. And here is a Jewish man, and she is looking at him and saying, I see the mark of God on you. I perceive you're a prophet. And now Jesus says to her, listen, living water is available, but if you want living water, there are some things that you are going to have to attend to. You're going to need to deal with some of your own shortcomings, some of your own sinful practices. Go get your husband. You don't have one. It's true. After, after having had five, she's now done away with the practice of marriage and is living with someone else. We don't know why. She could have been poorly treated. I, here's what I know about this part of the story is Jesus doesn't shame her or condemn her for it. He simply says, I see you as you are. And seeing her as she is does not disqualify her as a candidate for living water. Jesus just says, can we talk about the broken places? Can we talk about the painful places? Can we talk about the disappointing places? And she says, there is something about you. And she goes on. She says, I can see you're a prophet. And then she asks him a question. There is a question, I think, that is burning in her heart and in her mind. When she asks about the two mountains, she's asking Jesus to resolve an age-old question. How do we worship God? The Jews tell us to do it one way. We want to do it this way. But there is something in this broken, lonely, isolated woman's heart that genuinely wants to encounter the living God. And so now, having understood that the mark of God is on Jesus, she says, you can explain this to me. Is it Mount Gerizim, where our elders have said we should worship? Or is it in Jerusalem? What does worship look like? Where do I have to go? What do I have to say? How long do I have to sing? And where do I bring my sacrifices? And Jesus says, listen, lady. A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know. Salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come 
when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers. What is God looking for? Worshipers. The Father seeks. God, his spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in the spirit and in truth. And the woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he's going to make it all clear. He's going to explain everything to us. Then Jesus says, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. This woman wants to talk about formula. She wants to talk about place. She wants to talk about ritual. And Jesus flips it to talk about the nature of worship, and he centers it in relationship with God. He says, listen, the time is coming where the location won't matter. Because God works through people. God doesn't work through buildings. And worship is relational. It's not transactional. If your idea of worship has been, this is something I give God to satisfy something in him, and then I go away until it's time to come back and worship again, you are missing the beauty of the experience that God has designed for us. Because worship is centered in the person of Jesus, not in the activity that I am engaged in. It's centered in his work on the cross and his work in the resurrection. Jesus says, you don't have to worship in Jerusalem. You don't have to go to Gerizim. What you have to do is you have to embrace that salvation comes through Jesus. That's what he means when he says salvation comes through the Jews. You can't decide how you're going to get to God. That's not how it works. You have to let God talk about God. There's a time coming. When is that time? Well, for you and me, it's right now. Because Jesus was speaking of when he would die, he would resurrect, he would ascend to heaven, and he would send his spirit who enables us to worship. He says in 1 Corinthians six nineteen, Paul says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you whom you have received from God? You don't have to go to that temple. You don't have to go to this temple. You will become a temple, that place where the spirit of God dwells himself. Because at that moment, at that point in time, worship is no longer positional or cultural. Worship becomes relational. Not about how we worship, but who we worship. This is what Jesus describes as worshiping in spirit and in truth. Because I give you my spirit, because you are drinking of my spirit, what wells up out of you will be worship. As you go about your day, in the conversations that you have with those around you, as they are guided by my spirit within you, that is worship. As you serve your church community, because you love me and you want to help people come to relationship with me, that is an act of worship. As you parent your children and do your best to love them into relationship with me, Understanding, John, you will really blow it some days. That is worship. Worship is what takes place when we surrender our lives to Christ and we allow his spirit to indwell us and then begin to move through us. It's not the songs, and it's not the tithing, and it's not the serving. It's a heart that is positioned to yield before the Lord, kneeling before him, looking for his instruction, and living out what he has asked us to do. This is what worship is. 
Paul, in Romans 12, says, listen, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Paul equates us climbing up onto the altar with worshiping God. Paul says, saying, in essence, Jesus, here I am. All I have, all I am is yours. I am a living sacrifice. I am living as if I am already on an altar offered to you, surrendered. Do with me what you will. This is worship. And like I said, we'll talk about the singing. But the singing that doesn't come from a heart that says, I'm surrendered to Jesus, is only singing. Serving that doesn't flow from a heart that is fully surrendered to Jesus isn't worship, it's service. And service is good. And giving is good. They're all good things, but they're never intended to be the main thing. And so, as we talk about being a people who worship God, as we, as we talk about people who worship in spirit, by the spirit, and in truth, relationship with God, our beginning point is hearts yielded to the leading, the ministry, the influence of the Holy Spirit. Understanding that, that God sees our brokenness, our shortcomings, like he did this woman at the well, And those don't discount us. He didn't say, go back and marry the guy that you're with now, then come talk to me and we'll we'll carry on the conversation. He just said, I see you. I see your brokenness. I see your broken relationships. I see your pain. And I have living water available for you. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me for just a minute? I'm going to pray for us just a second, but I just, I can't, I just got to ask. Man, are are you here this morning and you'd say to me, I I feel like I'm the woman at the well. I don't, don't ask me that question, Jesus, because I don't want to talk to you about the places that are broken. I don't, I don't want to talk to you about the places where I feel shame. I feel, I failed. If you're here this morning, and you don't know Jesus, like this woman who just found him one day, today is your day. He loves you despite your brokenness and is here to lead you through it. And if you would say to him, not to me, but to him, maybe for the first time this morning, God, if that's your invitation, I want to say yes. I'm I'm willing to surrender my own brokenness to you, to learn what it means to worship you that I might be whole. Would you just lift your hand high enough for me to see and agree with you so I know who I'm praying with? I see you guys, yeah. You're on my left, thank you. I see you, 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 I see more importantly, Jesus sees you. Anyone else? Anyone else? I see you, brother. God bless you. Proud of you. I see you. Yeah. Lord, your word says that you stand at the door and you knock. And if any of us will 
open the door, you will come in and make a place with them, a home with them. Those of us who have said this morning, by the raising of our hands, I acknowledge my own sinfulness, my own brokenness, my own shame, and I, I'm here to surrender that to my Savior. Holy Spirit, we invite you in this moment to come and bring healing. Lord, that there would come this answer to that longing in a heart to know you and be known by you. God, that we are forgiven when we bring our brokenness, acknowledge our brokenness. We're healed and we're restored. Move in power, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Please visit us at mylfc.com for more information about our church. Thank you so much for listening.